All right. Welcome, folks. Welcome back to Larger, Freer, More Loving. As always, I'm Matt Levine. I'm Dwight Lewis. And last time we welcomed y'all back and talked about what Dwight and I have been doing for the last year that we haven't been recording episodes. We also talked a bit about some of the societal trends over the last year that have been causing concern for us and that have really been hitting our hearts as a way to lead into the things that we want to forefront in this second season of the show, things like the role of emotion and racial justice and social justice work more broadly, concepts of transformation and revolution, and uplifting ways of being and knowing that are marginalized in our white supremacist, patriarchal, capitalist world. And today we're lucky enough to have a scholar, public intellectual, and activist who's done wonderful work that touches on all of these, uh, Dr. Maisha Cherry. Uh, thanks for being here, Maisha. And yeah, we wanna, me. yeah, we wanna start by just giving you a chance to introduce yourself. So um, I'm Maisha Cherry. I am um, assistant professor of philosophy at the University of California here in Riverside, Southern California. It's hot today, it's 85 degrees in February. And I say that because I'm originally from the East Coast. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not used to being this hot in February. So um, I'm warm here in Southern California. Um, I do work on emotions, um, attitudes in public and uh, political life. I just came out with a book uh, a couple of months ago called The Case of Rage, uh, Why Anger is Essential to Anti-Racist Struggle. Um, before that, I had a collection of um, interviews um, that I did on my podcast uh, and turned into a book. So it's called Unmuted Conversations on Race, uh, Prejudice and Social Justice. And I have a forthcoming book coming out next year on forgiveness, tentatively entitled The Failures of Forgiveness. Hey, okay. Yeah, okay, right. Okay, right. Okay. Um, so we're going to plug this book one more time. Make sure you guys go out and buy uh, The Case for Rage. Um, and you started out, you know, calling yourself, you know, a scholar of emotions. You know, I'm in cold Minneapolis, just the opposite of you. I think it is probably... I'm looking out there. I checked earlier today. It was four degrees. Oh, my um, goodness. No Here's your sweatshirt and my T-shirt. <laughs> I know. I got a beanie on. I do have shorts on, but it's because that's all I know. I'm from Florida. Y'all know. Um, and so it's hard for me up here. I've been here six months. You went um, outside with shorts on? No, 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 no. Okay, okay. okay. I just, I just want to be clear. Okay, no, no, all right. No, no, no. But people here all wear sweatpants inside. Um, and I can't, I like my legs to be free, you know, I'm from Florida, um, but, um, but, um, I'm here in Minneapolis, um, at the UM, U, uh, University of Minnesota right now. And, uh, we had a tragedy this week. Um, Mr. Amar Locke, a 22 year old black man was murdered by the cops. Um, and of course we mourn for his family and for the black communities around the globe. Um, the day after his death or really his murder. Um, the mayor and the sheriff had a press conference, which a black man, black woman, Miss Armstrong interrupted with some rage. And we're going to play a little bit of it now. Then we're going to have uh, Maisha um, give some of her uh, thoughts on it afterwards. When it's when it's a threat. Chief Huffman, no, hold on, hold on. Chief Huffman, no, no, do not. Okay, I'm not a threat. I don't have a gun. Okay, don't treat me like I'm a threat. This is what I would call the anatomy of a cover-up. This is unacceptable, I'm sorry, it is. When I agreed to work with you on the work group, we talked about the importance of transparency and accountability. And here, what we are seeing is business as usual. And you know this, Amelia. You know this, Jacob. I don't know how you guys slept that night. I couldn't sleep at night. Tears from a mother's perspective, thinking about what happened. I saw the picture of Amir, he looks like a boy. My son is 17 years old. He has slept on his friend's couches for sleepovers. So we cannot sit here and whitewash this and pretend that it's okay. You knew that I was not gonna stand for police violence and a push for accountability, yet you asked me to be a part of the work group and I knew what I thought I was signed up for. This isn't what I signed up for. I understand if you're not comfortable having me continue to co-chair, that's your prerogative. I signed up to help bring recommendations because we're tired of being killed. We're tired of the cover-ups. We're tired of the excuses. And to hide behind the St. Paul Police Department 
The deadliest police force in the state of Minnesota is unacceptable. You all had no business agreeing to carry out a, a warrant, and now you're claiming that's part of their investigation. You don't know. Well, why the hell did you all sign up to do this in the first place? There was a homicide that happened at one something in the morning on Hennepin Avenue. Someone was killed, and then the person drove away in a black SUV. They're still at large in Minneapolis, potentially a threat to residents. But you all go do something for St. Paul police, and now you're trying to hide behind that decision. It's not acceptable. We are ready for change. When the people voted to reelect you, Jacob, they not only showed that they wanted to see a new leader, right? Not saying you're not the person who got reelected, you got reelected. But what they were expecting is a new beginning. That's why they gave you more power and authority. So that is what we want to see as the residents of Minneapolis. We don't want to see cover-ups. We don't want to see whitewashing. People are asking very simple questions that have still not been answered. Amelia, you're saying you want to be the chief? Then act like it. <laughs> Demonstrate integrity. Don't cover up for what those cops did. If they knew that the kid had a gun as he started waking up, say, drop your weapon. They didn't do that. One cop opened fire and took the life of a child who was trying to go back into his blanket. Any mom can see what happened there. So I can't tolerate the whitewashing. I'm sorry, y'all. We can't do this. I know you have your narrative. I know you have your script. And no, you guys didn't personally go shoot somebody. But you do have the opportunity to make it right, to talk about the fact that you changed the no-knock warrant policy. Where's the evidence of that? That wasn't present on what happened to Amir Locke. So if I'm going to be the co-chair of this group, I'm expecting strong leadership, I'm expecting integrity, and I'm expecting accountability. Yes. You guys aren't going to waste my goddamn time. And I don't care what you guys had your security trying to stop me. You, I can be used to come speak the truth about what needs to happen, but when it's time to call out these inconsistencies, these inaccuracies, the lack of information, I got to sit in the back and, or even not even be invited. I'm not here for it. We fought too long, too hard. It's people in jail, including Cortez Rice, trying to get the court to show what's happening in the courtroom so people can see what's going on. People have put their lives on the line because we're ready for change. So we're expecting from this point forward for you guys to do something different. I'm not playing. We're not here for it. We're not here for it. I'm only committed to working on this work group if you all are committed to being honest and transparent and not covering up the bullshit. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm watching it and immediately I'm thinking about uh, Brittany Cooper's, I, I know it's only right that I talk about my book, but I come around a, a tradition of black feminists who've written on anger. So I'm thinking about Brittany Cooper's book um, that came out a couple of years ago and it's called uh, Eloquent, Eloquent Rage. And she makes a distinction between um, something that she distinguishes between eloquent rage and elegant rage. Mm. So eloquent rage is, is it's articulate. Um, it's of course, it's, 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 it's furious. Um, it's, 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 it's focused on a, an addressing a particular injustice. Um, it's bold, but it's not elegant. So it's not going to sound good to everyone's ears. Um, it's not going to, uh, I mean, she used the language of whitewashing. Um, it's not going to feel comfortable for people to hear it. It's going to speak the truth. Um, and, and it's not, it's not articulated in order for people to, to feel good about it. And when I, and I, when I see that, I, I see a perfect image of eloquent rage. Um, and it also flies against um, kind of stereotypes that we have, that when someone is angry, then they are completely irrational and out of control. And we see kind of a perfect picture of, of one can speak out of a particular emotion and be articulate, get to the point. I mean, she had like 10 premises leading us to a conclusion. <laughs> um, it was convincing. Um, it was illuminating. Um, but the reason why we felt it and the reason why people in the audience felt it is because it was seasoned and peppered, um, not only just with passion and love, but with anger. Um, and so when I, when, I, when I just see that, I just see not only hers being an example of, this, of what is called eloquent rage, but so many other Black women that I've encountered, even my own mother, um, but just people who are just frustrated and tired. 
and want to speak truth to power. Um, it looks, it looks just like that. I'm also reminded of, um, you know, one of the things that I kind of articulated in my book and one of the things that I'm drawn to when it, in regards to, to, to anger and, and what it responds to, anger responds to an injustice, it responds to, to, to a wrongdoing. Um, and, and, and particularly what is interesting about, about anger, it draws our attention to something that has um, gone wrong in the world that in some ways can be obscured and erased, um, not just merely forgotten, um, but sanitized and whitewashed. And the power of anger to kind of not just illuminate, but bring our attention to something that we want to ignore, that we want to paint over, um, is a powerful thing, particularly kind of anti-racist anger that I'm describing in my book and that I'll also see kind of depicted in that video. I mean, it's the power to illuminate. I mean, what she calls out is exactly what I'm, what I'm suggesting that, that, that anger can do. Make us aware of stuff that we perhaps were not aware of. Makes us aware of things that we perhaps want to ignore. And to call us to, a, to account. So it's to call them out the injustice. Um, but it's also kind of a challenge of it all, right? So it's not just, I'm going to expose you, but I'm exposing you so you can see yourself. Mm-hmm. And so that you can do something in response um, to that exposure, particularly when um, it's bringing attention to kind of inconsistency or hypocrisy, right? So one said, as she kind of highlights, you say that you are committed to this, but you're doing this. I mean, that's Baldwin, right? And his criticism of America, right? You say that you're about this. You have this narrative. You have this, 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 this picture of who you take America to be. But I'm here to tell you that it is not the case. But I am calling you to be better to live up to the standards that you said that you articulate. I mean, this is very much what Douglas also talked about in his 4th of July speech. I mean, this, this is a, a tradition of this eloquent of this eloquent rage. And it's one of the reasons why I make a case for it, right? What, what, what would a world look like, particularly in a non-ideal world where it just consists of so much injustice? What would a world look like without that kind of injustice? How could we see uh, 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 that calling out of injustice? How could we see without that kind of anger, right? Um, how could we live up um, to the standards that we say we have despite hypocrisy without that kind, of, that kind of anger? How can we feel what someone else feels without that kind of anger? How can we be motivated to do something about injustice without that kind of, of anger? And that's one of the reasons why I make, a, I make a case for it. So I salute that sister. I salute everybody who's hurting um, and who's fired up to do something in response to that, that particular hurt. But it starts with, with exposing the lies and, and, and challenge us to do much better. And there's nothing like an angry black woman um, to kind of usher, into that, usher us into that transformation that we so desperately need. Hey, wow, wow. That was um, absolutely fire. <laughs> uh, I'm just gonna start with that. Um, but you brought up Baldwin and I have a question here, but I'm like not going to, and I'm going to this question about Ruth Baldwin. Um, so uh, Baldwin talks about whiteness being uh, trapped in trapped in history, um, at least in the fire next time. And so I'm wondering, do you think that whiteness can actually be like um, can pull itself out of the trapping of history, or can um, can see itself, right? Can untangle itself um, from uh, um, uh, like avoiding actually stepping into the vulnerability of seeing itself, right? Um, do you actually think that whiteness can do that? So I don't think whiteness can do it because the very definition of what we take whiteness to be is this attachment to a particular kind of historical narrative. But I think people who's been, white people who've been seduced by whiteness can. resist that seduction and come out of that uh, to, to finally see the truth, right? So whiteness is gonna do what whiteness is gonna do. But the question is, are we gonna free ourselves from whiteness, yeah, yeah, right? yeah. and, and it, it, it takes a, it takes a, it takes an individual um, that is willing to free to free themselves from that, right? Mm-hmm. So, so that's why you know when Baldwin writes, he's he's not he's not speaking to concepts; he's speaking to individuals, right? He's speaking to individual lives, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Calling people comrades, my black comrades. Um, you know, he says at the very end of uh, the fire next time when he says, you know, calling you know, for re- <laughs> relatively black conscious folks and, and white conscious folks, if we don't do our duty, then there's gonna be a fight. Like he's calling out individuals um, to free themselves from this kind of seduction in order to, to, to bring about change. So whiteness is gonna do what whiteness is gonna do, but I think white people can free themselves from that seduction. And you can only free yourself from that seduction by being challenged to do so, by being exposed to do so. 
um, by being encouraged to do so, by being motivated to do so. And that's a constant work because the seduction is real. Real, real. Right? The seduction is real. Yeah. Um, no, I appreciate that response. And I, I, I feel you and agree with you completely. So we are going to move on to your book now a little bit. Um, <laughs> a little bit. All right. We're going to move on a little bit. Um, so, and really, I'm not even going to ask this first question. Isn't even going to be about your book. So you're coming off this book tour. How are you doing? How is the tour? So behind the scenes, I said I was tired, but I'm not supposed to think I'm tired on air. But yeah, I'm tired. <laughs> yeah, you can be tired. <laughs> no, I just, I just, I just, um, you know, it's, 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 it's been, it was an amazing ride. I mean, you, you work on something so long. And um, I got interested in the topic right before I going back, right before I went to grad school. So this was like 2012. And it kind of came out of, you know, just witnessing what was happening um, in response to Trayvon Martin's murder and kind of the rise of Black Lives Matter. And, and so it's been something that I've been thinking about for a very, very, very long time. Um, and being able to kind of, you know, hone my craft as a writer and as a thinker and being able to, to put it in book form was just a long journey um, and um, couldn't wait to get it out. <laughs> and I thought that it would come out uh, sometime before last year. Um, and particularly when the protests were happening in 2020, I felt, oh my God, I wish my book was out. Oh my goodness. And then you just realize when you wake up to the news this week or last week and you realize the same old, same old. That unfortunately, you know, the book is not speaking to a particular moment, but if we live in a white supremacist patriarchal society, every moment, unfortunately, is a moment for the book to speak to. So I, I'm happy that the book is out, um, that it's, you know, finally able to do the kind of work that I've been, been wanting it to do. And, you know, it's five months out, so it's still, it's still doing that particular work, but I'm so happy that people can now, you know, buy it in the stores. Uh, people who are angry right now can go pick it up and uh, try to figure out what they can do with this anger that they have. People who are critical of anger is out. And then they can pick up the book that can kind of lessen some of the anxieties and some of their worries about it. So I'm happy that it's out. Um, it's been well-received so far. I get an opportunity to talk to students, uh, talk to people who are not academics. I think that's been the joy for me. Um, to talk to people who are not academics, to talk to activists. Um, and the conversation is still going. So I I'm just excited that it's out and I can you know, kind of talk about it. Uh, it's been a lot of work. Um, but I wouldn't have it any any kind of way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's out. Go pick it up. Go pick it up. The case for rage. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm gonna keep plugging it. You know, uh, <laughs> please, please do. You know, I'm gonna keep <laughs> plugging it. Um, so, in the introduction, you talk about the influence of the summer of 2019 um, and teaching. And I really want to focus on this teaching aspect. How does your teaching actually impact your research, and um, how uh, do you have anything to say to junior scholars about connecting these two aspects of academic work? Yeah, so particularly we have a tendency to, uh, you know, use a kind of phrase on the ground, right? And usually typically when we're referring to that, particularly when we're, we're in the ivory towers, we're, we're simply talking, uh, we're referencing people who do kind of activist work, who, who are part of organizations who actually go out and protest. And if you're not an activist yourself, the closest people, that are on the ground that you have in your life as an academic are your students. Yes. Right. So to me, my students are not my customers. <laughs> um, my, my, my students are my co-citizens who are much more active than I am, right? Um, who know much more than I know about certain kinds of things. Um, and if anything, they are, they, they are who I think with um, and who I respond to, um, they are my interlocutors, um, as well as my, 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 my audience in, in, in some ways. So when I, teaching for me has always been very much connected. I mean, I, I find it, you know, I always talk to my writer friends and I always say, my writer friends who are not, uh, scholars, I always say to them, you're missing out. I mean, you, you don't teach. <laughs> I mean, how, how did you come up with something to write? I mean, <laughs> how do you test out your ideas? How do you know what, what other people are thinking? I just don't know how people do it. And I'm particularly talking about young people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm particularly talking about certain demographics. So in Cal here in California, uh, most of my students are first-generational students. I, I work at a predominantly Hispanic institution. Um, so they're coming from a very different background 
background. Um, and prior to this, I, I worked in the CUNY system as well. So you got people of color working in New York City. I mean, living in New York City. So it's a very, I mean, th those are my people. <laughs> but also I'm getting older. And so there's generational gaps. Um, and, you know, when I think about who I'm writing for their part, you know, and who I'm in conversation with, they are who I'm in conversation with. So the way in which I tailor my classes, you know, I think about them in mind. Um, the, the things that I cover, the readings that I cover, the references, all that stuff. I mean, they are what make my, my classes. So they are very, they are very important to my scholarship and the ways I think as a, as a thinker. Um, because I think with them, I even give them credit. If you notice in the book, giving shout outs to my grad students and yeah, all that yeah. stuff for the acknowledgements, because they, 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 you know, they are the, the what is the focus group? <laughs> Do I got this right? Because y'all know, y'all know, you know, the, the, they, they got, they got their hands on the pulse of things and they're also engaged in the work. And so without them, I can't really be effective at what I write about and, and how I think. So they, they make me a better, a better citizen, but they also make me a better, a better thinker in that, in that particular regard. So when I think about when I was thinking about, particularly when the book was about to come out and you know, I kind of go back and kind of make some edits for the introduction, it happened the COVID-19. And um, I was just witnessing just a disproportionate impact that COVID had on my students. And it is still continuing to have on my student because of who they are racially and who they are socially and economically. And thinking about, you know, when we went online in early 2020, um, it was also a lot of protests going on in, in the spring of that year. And so I was strangely, I was teaching a course on, on um, social philosophy and the theme of the course was uh, struggle, uh, struggle and protest and struggle. So we were talking about these things, but they were the one going to marches. I was too scared to go to a march. You weren't going to catch me out there. I wasn't going to get COVID. I mean, that, that's, I'm old. I, that's yeah, my consideration. Yeah. But for them, they're like, I'm willing to risk it all. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so these are the people that I was in conversation with. And so, and so as a result of being in conversation with them and just thinking about a lot of these issues, uh, they made the book richer and much more relevant and made me just better. I mean, one of the things that I learned, we were all struggling together, but I came out just a better, a better person and a better scholar and a better co-citizen because I went with it through, through them. And, 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 and as a result of that, I think I have a greater respect for what we do, or at least what we can do um, in the classroom and in relationship, in relationship to students. And I think it changed my perspective of how I see my relationships um, with my, with my students, but out of that context, I mean, just hearing them struggle, seeing them struggle, talking with them, it adds some freshness and some insight. And as a result, I think the book is a little bit more relevant because of that experience that I had with them. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. Oh, we really appreciate that. Also, I love this idea of, uh, students as co-citizens. Um, yeah. I think this is something that most academics do not treat uh, their, 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 um, their, their students this way. Um, and it's very much a top-down model and this idea of actually interacting and being on the ground with them, literally sitting in the dirt um, is, uh, is uh, beautiful, beautiful. Um, I think we need more of this. I, and I wanna ask another question, Matt. I'm gonna, you know, I'm sorry, you know that I do this. Um, but what, what do these, so, you know, um, and this is a selfish question. Um, so, I'm at UMN, uh, predominantly it's a PWI. Um, you know, I teach, I'm like teaching a class right now, knowledge and society. And I'm like, uh, um, the struggle is, is that I have not, I have not one uh, black person in my class, right? Um, um, and so uh, how do I, how does that interlock, how does that interlock, interlocking, um, how does that co-citizenship help um, at least in relationship to like being on the ground, right? With those, with those students. Um, yeah. Just yeah. And, and here's also the thing, students will surprise you, right? So, I mean, I one just, of the things about being in conversation with them, what they have a tendency to show you is that we're not who you thought that we were, who we thought you, you know, for, for example, I have a friend of mine who is currently at an Ivy League and she had her assumptions about what the Ivy League experience would be. Mm -hmm. Um, and she was coming from a public, a public system, um, a state school, and, you know, she was dealing with one group and she was like, oh God, I got to deal with these kinds of students. And she goes to the Ivy League institution and come to find out um, that those kinds of students were students of color, mm -hmm. were students who came from a certain, certain socioeconomic uh, background. Um, and so she was just surprised. I mean, she thought she would be getting 
being kind of a sport brat kind of no. uh, privileged students. And that's, like, that's the opposite of what, of what she got. And, and that's easy when we think about it kind of in what visually what we can see, but I think even white students will feel fool you, right? I mean, here's the thing, and, and I'm born from Audre Lorde here is that, listen, we, we all come out of difference, mm-hmm. right? So just because everybody's white in the classroom doesn't mean that everybody's the same. People have, people have arrived in that moment from very different backgrounds, stories, histories. And if you let them tell it, then you would, then you would know. And I think, I think, I think the interesting thing, even when you're dealing with that kind of what may seem like a homogeneous kind of space, uh, if you talk to them just a little bit, you'll find out that they're, they come from very different um, situations. And it's not to say that like, you want to capitalize on like the struggle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but what I want to say is that we're human beings. We all struggle mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and people will surprise you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's that surprise that we kind of learn from each, from, from each other. So your diversity may look a bit different than my diversity, yeah. but the human struggle, you know, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. And if you allow students to tell you what it is, then you come out better in the long run. Yeah, right. Yeah. So it may not be the case that one of your students sold drugs to get through school. Okay. <laughs> Right. But I don't want to say that that's the only story. That's the only story of struggle. Yeah. Yeah. We all got a whole a whole bunch of struggles, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, whole bunch of ways in which we've come to knowledge and understanding. Yeah. But I think if you make space for that and, and don't get caught up in the fact, I wish this class was diverse in the ways in which I want it to be diverse. Be diverse yeah. um, they will surprise you and everybody will come out better as a result. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely agree that they've been surprising me. Uh, uh, the best and I'm not gonna lie like even I was at UCF before this and even there you know I had kids you know wiling at a protest like they're at the they're at the front like yeah I've seen videos I'm like I'm I hope you're not getting arrested like right now (laughs) like 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 in the same way that we you know videotape proud boys or or whatever I'm like you're gonna be one of those that is in a video arrested I'm pretty sure one of your students is an an anarchist (laughs) yeah one of those one of those one of those you'd be surprised how radical even the whitest of white students can be I'm telling you I agree I agree (laughs) put a mask on though my 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 girl put a mask on uh like help help yourself a little um, right, right. You'll also be surprised that those who look diverse in appearance mm, may mm, not have that diverse radical ideology. Speak on right? that. So, <laughs> so yeah. I mean, I you know, I've entered into spaces where I had assumptions about, oh, they look this color, and coming to find out, they may look this color racially, but they kind of have this kind of non-progressive politics that you got to yep. teach them in some way yep. out of. And you know, I found those to be. Some of the emotionally hardest. draining courses because yeah, you yeah. got to deal with it like the what, what is happening here what is happening here so mm-hmm. diversity can look very different in very different ways and students will always have the tendency tendency to 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 to, to, to surprise you so what you, you you mentioned the question about junior junior scholars scholars yeah and I, yes. I, got, I got a sense i didn't answer that partly because i forgot the question but can you can you i, I don't want to i don't want to not answer that so can you throw that back at me yeah, so I was just like, how can, and I think you've, you've, you've spoken to it a little bit, especially because, you know, I'm a junior scholar and I've been, we've been going back and forth at it. We, we junior like, scholars. Yeah, huh? We don't, we don't got tenure yet. <laughs> no, you, you ain't got tenure yet? Four years out. This is my fourth year. Lord Jesus. <laughs> Yo, I'm about to throw it at you anyways. You tenure, <laughs> you know, you're associate. I'm giving you it, you know. Uh, you got it from me, even though it don't matter. Uh, <laughs> Uh, uh, but it's like, uh, I was, the question was, how do we connect, you know, our research and teaching? But I think you, you've shown it already. I think you've already shown it and we've pushed on it. Um, and you know, you've been, you done came back swinging, uh, <laughs> came back swinging. Yeah. I love this. I love this idea of, of students as co-citizens and you talking about the relationship between your work and, and protest and struggle, uh, because actually, uh, here on the ground in Portland, uh, in some in some uh, uh, protest communities, I'm a part of uh, your book has actually been shared uh, uh, in our ah, text chain. There's a chapter dedicated to Portland, right? Right. Dedicated right. Chapter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. So, so in the book, though, you you make this really, really compelling case for the importance to anti-racist struggle uh, uh, of this particular type of rage that you call Lordian rage. 
so, so what is Lordian rage? How does it differ from other types of rage? Uh, and what is so important about it for movements toward a racially just world that those of us in Portland here are sharing your book around in our circles? Yeah, so um, when I was going back to 2012, when I got interested in, in the topic, not only as a as a human kind of experience, but as an intellectual experience. Um, when I was looking at the feminist literature on, on emotions and, and, and uh, oppression, I noticed that a lot of feminist scholars were referencing Audre Lorde. And I wanna admit in 2012, I had no idea who Audre Lorde was. I knew she wasn't a philosopher, um, but I knew, I knew that these white feminist philosophers were just citing this woman. And I'm like, who is this? First of all, when white women <laughs> or just white scholars in general start citing a black person, who has nothing to do with philosophy, you need to go seek out that primary source ASAP. <laughs> so I'm like, who is this woman? So I did my research and the essay that they were, that they were, they, they were heavily citing was The Uses of Anger. That's the name of the essay. Um, and I read, the, I read the essay and I was just, I was just blown away. It's also those moments where you realize that like, okay, this person's written on this topic. There's nothing more that I can add or say. <laughs> like you kind of get that initial, like this person said it all. Um, but I, but I, I read the essay and I was like, okay, now I know why people are, why people are referencing her. So when I was thinking about, you know, just thinking about kind of what I wanted to say uh, um, in relationship to the whole general project of anger and, and oppression, um, I had to give credit to where credit was due. I think most of my, a lot of my thinking about anger comes from inspiration from that, from that essay, from, from her work. And so I call the anger that I'm defending the book, Lordian Rage, after Audre Lorde, feminist scholar, poet. And it's, it's basically not only just giving due credit to that essay, but the way in which I describe the rage comes from that essay. So one of the things that I say is that Lordian Rage, this kind of anti-racist anger, is directed at racism, racist, racist attitudes. If you're familiar with the essay, she talks about that the very first page of the essay, right? She says, my anger in response to racism is directed at blah, 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 yeah. right? Um, it's also an anger um, in which one aims um, to change the state of affairs, right? And she talks about this. I mean, it's like on the fourth page of the essay, particularly if you're doing the woman's quarterly 1981 version and not the sister outsider version, where she talks about, uh, you know, uh, we aim our anger at change. Uh, more specifically, she talks about radical transformation of our world. And I was like, all right, all right. Um, it's also the way in which I describe it, this kind of anger is, it has what I call a kind of inclusive perspective. So you're not just concerned about remedying injustice for oneself, or getting some kind of do for oneself, um, but for everyone. And this comes at the very end of the essay when Audre Lorde talks about, when she's talking about uh, third world women and being in solidarity with them. And she basically says, I'm not free. We're not free in, you know, until every mm -hmm. woman is free, right? That inclusive perspective. So that, you know, kind of that inspiration. So when I, when I start chapter one, trying to land out what I take loading and rage to be and how it differs from other kinds of anger that can arise in a political injustice context, I kind of do kind of like a comparison based on that kind of those kinds of features. So once again, you know, I say, hey, this kind of rage directed at racism, racist attitudes, not scapegoats. Right. So there's a rage that I call rogue rage that is directed at scapegoats. Right? So as opposed to being mad at the government for their unjust policies, they're mad at policies that benefit a certain kind of group that the government just seems to favor for one particular policy, such as immigrants, for example. Immigrants are coming to take our jobs. That's not how it works, um, right? Um, is directed at, at change, which is very different from another kind of anger that I talk about called white rage, in which it's directed at hate and elimination of the other. It's what we saw in Char Charlottesville. It's what we saw on the, you know, January 6th in the Capitol, right? Um, it has an inclusive perspective. As I said before, it's, you know, you're, you're thinking about everybody getting free, which is very different from a kind of rage that I borrow from Bill Hooks that's called narcissistic rage. That in all likelihood, one might think it has the same features as Lordian rage, but that person's not concerned about getting freedom for all. That person just wants freedom for oneself or people that, that has the kind of privilege that they have. So you can imagine a kind of well-do black person who has a certain kind of economic status, who the police arrest, and they're mad, not because this is a sign of systemic injustice, but they're mad because they're supposed to be the exception of such treatment. 
right? Given their particular status. One ought not to treat them like all those other poor black people who's not doing anything with their, their lives. So that's a narcissistic kind of kind of version. So that's the, the you know, that's how I kind of see learning rage at its core from a conceptual kind of perspective, different from those other kinds. And you kind of think about this, if it has these particular features, I'm contrasted with those destructive kinds, which I think if people are nervous about anger, one of the things that I say, people are really nervous about those other kinds, road rage, white rage, narcissistic rage, mm-hmm. and that's the kind of rage that I'm defending, um, given the features that I talked about. But I basically suggest, well, given the features that I talked about, one can imagine the kind of action that one is motivated to engage in, right? So if, if your rage has the feature of, I'm going to target towards scapegoats, and I'm aiming to eliminate them, we can imagine the kind of actions that you're going to participate in. You're going to do a Charlottesville. You're going to do a capital, a, a January 6th, right? You're going to do internet trolling, right? You're not going to, I'm going to form a movement called Black Lives Matter in which I mark for Black Lives and our whole purpose we have, you know, and you're not going to do that kind of thing. So Lonely Rage is going to lead us, given its features, it is likely to lead us to what I call kind of productive, um, productive, productive action. But I don't stop there. I mean, the rest of the book, one might say, well, I could have just stopped at chapter one. The rest of the book kind of talks about, you know, why this kind of anger is essential. Why is it important? What kind of work is it actually doing in anti-racist struggle? And I, I say this in brief, and if we want to go in more detail, we can. Um, so the rest of the chapter of the book basically says, well, the significant thing about this particular anger is that it ascribes value to, 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 to lives of the marginalized. Um, and this comes out of kind of a history in which we, you know, we say that emotions, particularly anger, is a way of valuing other people. Uh, that you can't get angry about something that you don't value, that you don't think is warranted of a certain kind of respect, right? And just, you know, one, particularly in the anti-racist context, when you see that certain lives are being disrespected and not being treated well, when you are angry, <laughs> that's in response to the fact that you're valuing, not only are you engaged in a valuing practice, but you're basically saying, without even saying it, that these lives um, are, are, are valuable and deserve a, certain kinds of respect. And that's a radical thing to say in a white supremacist context, right? That's a radical thing to say when people say, well, all lives matter, <laughs> right? Ascribing value to lives that have been mistreated um, is a radical thing to say and a revolutionary thing and a needed thing to say in the context of continual and systemic oppression, right? Another thing I say that loading rage does, and I try to kind of do this kind of briefly, um, is that it motivates productive action. And um, I basically go into kind of some social psychology and some neuroscience to kind of back this up. And then I kind of say, well, this explains why people like Ida B. Wells, black woman um, who advocated against anti-lynching all of her life. Sojourner Truth, uh, a woman who was, wasn't even educated, born a slave, but could tell it like it is, who had eloquent rage, could do the kind of work that she was engaged in. So it kind of helps us make sense of, of the motivating um, uh, features of it. And also why, um, it's not incompatible with love, but it's very much compatible with love. So I try to get us to reimagine Martin Luther King and his anger um, and his love, et cetera, et cetera. And then I also kind of talk about how another reason why it's important for anti-racist struggle is that just by having the anger, one can resist what I call kind of racist or racial rules in the world. Um, you can do it in a protest, but you can also do it on your job and you can also do it at home alone, but you can engage in a kind of radical revolutionary practice because just by having anger, you say I matter, you say they matter. Just by having anger, you say white people are not the only people who have a right to anger. I take that back, right? I, I kind of, you know, I have a right to express myself, not just express myself, uh, but to proclaim um, my indignation and my response to the wrongdoing in the world. Um, so that's, 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 that's kind of the, the, the case that I'm making. So I'm making a case for Lordy and Rage and saying that because it does the things that I talked about and has the features that I kind of described, that's why it's important. And that's why we shouldn't get rid of it. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, it was clear. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And I want to, I want to, I want to <laughs> pick up on this, uh, this, this idea that you mentioned that, that Lordian rage is a type of inclusive rage. Cause you say in the book, uh, you make it clear that, that your work on Lordian rage is not about black rage in particular, but right. it's about the anger of all people of color and their allies directed right. at racism and white supremacy. Uh, that said, you do have this awesome paper coming out uh, in the newest issue of Critical Philosophy of Race on Black Rage in particular. 
and very, very close to our hearts here, uh, it's about James Baldwin's work on Black Rage. Mm -hmm. Uh, So is there anything from this piece or your thoughts on James Baldwin's work on Rage that you think would be good to bring into the conversation? Right. So like, so one of the things I like to say is that, listen, we can say voting on Rage is kind of like an umbrella of like rage and response or anger and response uh, to racism. Um, and then you could just say, well, black rage is just will fit under the umbrella, right? Describing the particular, that particular rage as experienced by black folk in general, right? Um, so we can make room for that. Um, um, but I wanna, you know, as you, as you kind of laid out, you know, black rage is black people. <laughs> and so if, if I were to call it the case for black rage, it's just, oh, everybody else go, go away. You know, South Asian, we don't care about your racism. Asian Americans who were being beaten up in the street last week. Oh, we can talk about your anger in another context, right? The kind of anger that I'm talking about is a response to racism. That's what throughout the book, I talk about very, very different racial groups. It's not to say that there's nothing distinctive about anti-Black racism, right? Which, you know, or nothing distinct about, you know, what does it mean to be an Asian American angry in, the, in this moment, particularly last year? It's a very different kind of experience. Um, than it would be for black rage. So I want to allow for that. And so, but 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 loading rage is an umbrella, umbrella term in which we can make room uh, for these other uh, how it's manifested in, in different kinds of communities, given one's positionality and one's history, right? Um, so so black rage, you know, it's interesting. I um as much as I'm in love with Audre Lorde, you know, I don't do history. So Dwight, you do you do early modern, you know, I've never been like a figure person. I always looked at you guys as weirdos, no offense. Um, of how you can just focus on one person, <laughs> how you can focus focus on one person's life. Everything is kind, 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 kind. Everything is lime and it's lime. And I always thought, well, that's strange. That's interesting. Until I fell in love. <laughs> oh, with Baldwin. No, <laughs> me too. Baldwin and Audre Lorde. And I honestly feel that like I'm so We're sympathetic now to you historians, to you intellectual historians. I'm so sympathetic because there's something about. It is not to say these individuals are perfect individuals. I mean, that's not one of the, that's not what I'm claiming. But you know, you 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 feel that there's something about them in their biographies that just connect mm-hmm. with you in a very distinct way. Mm-hmm. And there's something a way about the way that they think and the way that they thought that just does something for you, in which you just want to read all their stuff and you want to think with them about certain kinds of things and think with them in the present moment because they're no longer here with us, right? So, I, so now I totally get it. <laughs> I totally get it. And as I indicated with, uh, with Audre Lorde in relationship to the, to the book, I mean, James Baldwin is constantly on my, on my mind, um, constantly on my mind. Um, and particularly when I was just really thinking about Black rage, um, I was really thinking about Baldwin. So I noticed, you know, a lot of things that I've, I've read on Baldwin in relationship to the emotions. I was always surprised that no one ever wrote anything about him in relationship to Black rage, particularly when he's been described as, as angry <laughs> all the time. Um, angry and, and, and bitter. I mean, that's something that was said to him, you know, with William Buckley, his, his, his debateful. And even later on in his life, people just thought, oh, he's just a bitter man. And they didn't really take his later essays kind of seriously. So the fire next time is something that we praise. And people admit that he was angry then. And then there's a very different kind of narrative that we give him when things just don't turn out politically and what is one's political perspective and one's emotions in that particular regard. So people love the hopeful, redeeming, angry mm-hmm. because white people will now wake up Baldwin, but not, nah, you guys, <laughs> you guys just not getting your shit together kind of Baldwin, right? And that anger. So, so I really wanted to like, I felt that it was room to kind of to think with him about his emotion and about black rage in, 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 in general. And so the piece is just trying to make sense. What is Baldwin's moral psychology of anger, right? How did he think about anger? What did he think about in relationship to, to, to his uses? Um, so one of the things that I kind of talk about in the, in the piece, you know, a, a lot of things that he describes um, about his, his kind of first experience, semi-first experience in New Jersey in relationship to anger and kind of what that experience is. It, what that experience was for him. And, uh, you know, for those who are familiar, he's working in the power plants in Jersey and he's going to these restaurants, very different. I mean, Jersey, for those who know East Coast, Jersey, Jersey. <laughs> we wish it wasn't close, but it's close to New York. So you think it, would, it wouldn't be a difference in like culture, you know what I mean? But yeah, everybody yeah. know who lives in New York, that Jersey is a very different culture. Anyway, so Baldwin is like going to the streets and like, you know, going to restaurants and he's being mistreated and you know, can't be served. And he's basically had enough. 
And he basically goes off. He's like, you know, the rage just builds up over him. He basically goes off. And he basically describes what that experience is like. And here's the thing. He thought that he would never be treated the way in which Black folks from the South would be treated. I mean, it's a narcissistic stuff right? you were talking about, right? He's very honest. He's very honest. That's another thing I like about Bob. He's honest. He is honest. He's very honest about, about that experience, right? But he has this experience where the anger just builds up and he describes throwing a picture of water at a waitress who doesn't want to serve him. And he's surprised that he was able to get out with his life. And his description of that emotion um, was just very impactful for me. Um, he describes it kind of, you know, what happens to his body, what happens to yeah. his mind. And, yeah. but even in the midst of that, a lot of people will have, will have a tendency to describe that, oh, he uh, was engaged in kind of a blind rage. It was not bl- blind rage. I mean, he was able to like assess and evaluate. He knew everything that happened as he reflected back. Um, so he's very much aware. And so when I think about black rage, I think that provides a good opportunity in thinking with Baldwin about what black rage is. If people think, you know, black folks are out of their mind when they're angry at racism. They're out of their minds. They're not thinking right. They're being possessed by this emotion or whatever, whatever. And it's like, no, Baldwin teaches us that yes, it can be bodily. As you know, you know the video of the sister, you can hear the trembles in her voice. You, you know, you can, you can, you can, you know, I, can, I pick up on these cues a lot. You can tell the body response that's going on in her body, right? She's having a physiological and phenomenal, a phenomenal experience in that moment, right? Um, but her agency, I mean, she has full control in that moment, right? And that's what Baldwin just, just reminds me, as much as we like to think that Black po- folks are, by definition, irrational beasts. And he, he reminds us that you can have these experiences of racism, be very much uh, uh, aware of what's happening, very much rational, very much in control of one's agential capacities. Um, so that was just a starting point into to kind of mining throughout his essays, um, kind of what he thought um, what he thought, what he thought of, of, about it. And this is something that we discussed off air. Um, you know, one of the things I also address is how does, how does he think you get this rage? Do you have it simply because you are black? <laughs> and Baldwin says, no, you don't. Right. Um, and, and, you know, it goes back to an autobiographical note. He talks about how he's going to a friend's house to give him the suit that he wore to Martin Luther King's funeral. And he's talking to his friend and they're talking about Vietnam. And he noticed that he's upset about what's happening, but his friend is not upset. And his friend is using language like, oh, we, we need to figure out what we're going to do about Vietnam. We- and he's like, we? <laughs> like, you're the government? You, 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 you know, you're the white politician? And he's amazed. What he notices is that his stepdaughter does have a kind of anger, right? Going back to young folks, because young folk have their fingers on the pulse. It may not be fully developed or fully kind of like theorized, but they, they know what's going on, but he knows his stepdaughter does indeed have a sense of what's happening and she's, you know, angry in response. But his friend doesn't feel anything, right? And, you know, basically his conclusion is like, he doesn't feel anything because he's not thinking anything. He's not examining anything. And throughout Baldwin's essay, I mean, he talks about this. I mean, you know, to be angry at what's happening in one's world comes about because one has examined the world to be what it is. And you can be black all you want, but blackness doesn't make you by definition have black rage, right? Because you can be a black person, goes back to the lies that we were talking about, thinking everything is good. Thinking about America is perfect in every way. Thinking about if you get arrested, if you get beat up by the cops, that was your doing, you didn't comply, you didn't whatever. That if you're still poor, it's not because of systemic injustice and structural injustice, it's because you're not taking advantage of, of the opportunities that you have that we didn't have when we were in slavery. People have that particular narrative. That pl- per- black person may be black, but for Baldwin, that person is never going to have what we call black rage because they haven't examined America for what it is. So it comes about as a result of examination. Um, you know, he used a lot of Shakespearean language. Unexamined life is not worth living. I mean, yes. he cites Socrates in that sense um, because it's only through that examination that one can even, you know, have, have be angry. Uh, and thus uh, challenge the world um, to, to be and to become better. So yeah, yeah, I'm excited about that, about that piece, for people to read that piece. Yes, yes, we are too. Uh, and thank you for that. And I, I want to bring together a couple different threads that came up there, right? So, so I love this idea of, of making space, opening room in the academy for talking about Black rage, talking about Lordian rage, talking about emotions, uh, and, and want to come back to this idea of students and students having their finger on the pulse. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so Dwight and I are always talking with each other uh, about how philosophy in the academy generally are just so hostile to emotion and lived experiences. 
but you've just taken that head on in all of your work. Uh, and one of the things we're hoping to do this season is to try to uh, provide some advice for undergrad and grad students who want to do that kind of work and want to do that kind of work to actually improve people's lives. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so do you have any advice uh, for, for undergrad or grad students who want to center emotion, want to make room for emotion uh, and lived experience? You know, I, I'm going to answer this question the long way around. Um, because this question was recently asked to me in a Q&A uh, of a book talk um, by another Black philosopher. I think he kind of had a sense of what my answer was, but he was, you know, he wanted the audience to listen. And it's interesting because I, I, am, I am who I am because of how I was raised. And so my narrative is not so different um, than what I'm currently doing, whatever that doing is. And I kind of make that clear and be a little bit more specific about what I'm referring to. So I grew, I grew up, my mother was a community organizer. Um, and she was just also a woman. I mean, she's one of those women that you went to in the community. If you need help, she's going to give it to you. And my mother was physically handicapped all of her life. She was confined to a wheelchair all of her life, foster child. So she knew what it would meant to be discarded and unloved. So you also knew what it meant to be discriminated against on a, on a whole bunch of spheres. And I don't know how she did it, but she was just able to live a life of love as a result of that. Um, and she raised me in church and the church that we went to was very much community uh, orientated. So it was very, a lot of activist work is very progressive church. And so a lot of my politics I learned, I mean, that was the first time I place I learned politics and what it means to be a person of service. And so even while I was at that church, I mean, I was doing work for the homeless. I mean, we were just doing a lot of like community work. That was my life. Um, when I went to undergrad, I was, uh, I played basketball. And so the first two years of my life, for those who was a student athlete, you realize that's the only thing you're going to do. <laughs> you're going to play sports and maybe go to class. Um, mm -hmm. and, 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 and I kind of got, I realized that that's not the kind of life I wanted to live. And so uh, this last two years of my, my junior, my senior year, I became very active in, 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 in uh, campus life. And so I was like the president of certain kind, certain community organizations and, you know, SGA and all this stuff. And, you know, I felt like I was continuing something that I learned when I was younger. I went to grad school, got a, I got a, a master's in, uh, in divinity. I thought I was going to be a religion professor. And uh, <laughs> I was going to be a religion professor. And then I, I'm, 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 in, I'm in seminary in, uh, for three years and I realized, oh, they just talk to each other. I need to go back. I need to go back on the ground. And so I spent, um, after divinity school, I spent 10 years working in the nonprofit sector um, throughout, all throughout New York City. Um, but I was adjuncting on the weekends. <laughs> um, and then it just got to the point um, that I felt like, man, I'm really, I'm really loving this adjunct life. But not like that. <laughs> like, I, maybe I should go back to school. And one of the things that I was concerned about in going back to school is that I felt like all this work that I was doing, this community work that I was doing, I wouldn't be able to do it when I, when I you know, was focused on getting my PhD. Um, I moved to Chicago at the time and I was just trying to figure out like, how can I have my foot in both worlds, but yet be responsible to the school thing? You know, I'm the first person to graduate from college. It ain't a, it ain't a game. <laughs> so if I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it right and get out too. Um, so it was at that, my first year of grad school, it was 2014 that I decided to do a podcast. And the reason why I did a podcast, and I give a shout out in my book about this, is I was working with some formerly incarcerated students who I was teaching philosophy to. And I, this was my way to kind of stay in touch with them. We can still do philosophy, but y'all gonna check out these episodes that I'm doing with these, these, these cool philosophers. So that's why the podcast is what it is. Like, a radio, like I, I wanna impress those students. Um, so in some ways, the podcast, has always been a, a way for me to kind of continue to connect with people that I felt that I left behind when I went back to get my PhD. And so I, I came into as a grad student, you know, wanted to stay connected to that community that I, that I quote unquote left. Um, and then, you know, and so the research kind of took its own kind of direction. I felt like my, 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 my dissertation was on forgiveness. And I felt that I was just upset about the the uh, press conferences that I was hearing 
with reporters constantly asking these black women after their sons and husbands were killed by the police, can you find any heart to forgive? And I felt that that, that question was problematic. And every time I went into the philosophy research to try to figure out why it was problematic, no one ever asked that question before. And I'm like, well, if not me, then who? And so my dissertation is a project that originates out of what I was seeing in press conferences with black people. Um, and I was being true to myself and the questions that I, the questions that I wanted to ask. And I just found a, first of all, an advisor that was sympathetic to that particular project. Mm -hmm. um, but I found I was able to hone a kind of skill set in which I can ask those underground questions in ways that can satisfy requirements to get a dissertation. And don't, don't, don't tell me that at the beginning, because now I know what to do <laughs> going forward. I know that um, if philosophy is a response to our lives as human beings, it is not just in response to some lives that we all have, as I already articulated, we have diverse experiences. I just got to find a way to ask those, to ask those questions and to, to answer those in a certain kind of way. And so, um, you know, my work um, presently um, and futurely, if I have anything to say about it, is very much connected to, I think, questions that I know my aunt and my sister is asking in these moments. And I'm just trying to articulate them in a very, in a very different way. And one of the things I love about the topic of emotions, I mean, for lots of people, you know, I, I really believe that research topics that you're passionate about, you don't find them, they find you. Um, I really, that's just my motto. I mean, I mean, you got to write stuff for like your whole life, particularly dissertation, it's like a four to five year project. If you don't have any kind of connection towards those in a very intimate way, you're not going to finish. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think I, I, you know, I look at research projects as kind of like falling in love. I mean, there's a lot of people to fall in love with, but you can't control who you really fall in love with. And then the activity of love is an active work. I'm presently kind of thinking about a book by love that's active work but you know that person come you know it is what it is and that research topic was just something about emotions I don't I, I can't explain it it just really like woke my brain up it, it, it excited me and, and and I'm grateful because I find that it's a topic that I can talk to anybody about you don't need a PhD you don't need to go to college I can talk about my sister I can talk about forgiveness with my sister all day mm -hmm. and I love that I can talk to a stranger on the street all day about anger Right? I love that. So I like the fact that the topics that I'm interested in does have this direct connection, not just to my people, but people in general, because we are people who are emotional beings. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for that. And just trying to stay true to their experiences and try not to be so, so, so abstract. Um, but that's kind of how I, I, I think about my research project. I'm doing me, I guess, to answer your question a little bit more direct way. This is me. This is the only way I know how to do this. And I would say to, to undergrads, thinking about going to grad school, grad students right now, be true to, to, to what excites you. Be true about what you're compassionate, um, compa you know, passionate towards. And you can still satisfy this kind of nerdy side of us. You can merge all those two together, um, those three together, and come out with brilliant projects that will resonate with people. Not all people. Um, I'm not for everybody. I'm perfectly fine with that. Mm -hmm. um, but you can do it in ways that can resonate with people that can have an, that can have an impact. And I think that one of the worst things that you can do is to try to model yourself, this kind of imposter syndrome crap, model yourself off of other, what a stereotypical philosopher is or scholar is. Those people are boring. <laughs> um, and I say they're boring because if, if you're not being you, then you're being boring. <laughs> um, just be you. Find, you know, find the, the research projects that you're interested in, try to find models, whether that's in philosophy or not, um, that you can emulate yourself and be inspired by. But do you, do the things that you're passionate about. Hone your craft as a scholar, because you got to do that. And you blend those things together. You'll never really work a day in your life. That's just mm -hmm. how I think about it. My, I'm listening to your story and... I'm all about this idea of doing of doing you, you know, telling students doing them. Um, but also, I'm listening to this, and we share so much of the same story, a little bit similar. Oh, thing. okay, okay. I grew up in a church. I played football in college. I got involved my sophomore junior year in the feminist club. I went to seminary. Uh, <laughs> Where did you go? Where did you go for seminary? I went to uh, RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary. Okay, okay. Uh, I, went I went to, to Howard. I went to Howard. Okay, okay. So you did it right, better than me. Um, <laughs> 
Uh, <laughs> this is just the truth. Sorry. It's you. Uh, and then I read this. I was there for a year and a half. I read this. Three days later, dropped out of seminary. Oh, uh, goodness. And applied to uh, PhD programs in philosophy. Adjunct. Wow. Subbed at um, in the uh, the uh, like county school system. Protested on the weekends. You were completely right about this. Like having a good advisor that will like advisors. I am going to say that advisors mm-hmm. that uh, that allow you um, to really do what you want to do. Because um, I was a savage. You know, I don't. I like. I I literally remember telling my advisor, either you can get on my side or you can get out of the way. Um, <laughs> and that's like. And for an advisor to be able to take that, uh, I went back and apologized the next day. And I was like, you know, I'm young. Like, you know how young people are. Um, but shout out to good advisors. Really, like anyone that's listening, like that's what you need. Mm-hmm. Like that's what you need. Roger Ari of Justin Smith. Also Catherine Sophia Bell. Like bad, try not to cuss on the podcast, but mm-hmm. bad, bad A's. Um, Do I, can I just say something for t- 10 seconds? And what you just said is so important. I think as much as we're talking to students, we need to talk to advisors. Is that trying to re- stop trying to remake people into your own image. Mm. That the best thing that we can do for students is allow them to do the things that they're passionate about and guide them and making sure that they're honing their skills to do the things that they're passionate about. Yes. And I yes. think that's the best thing that we can do as mentors and, and advisees. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and I will say this, if you've got an advisor that it's not allowing you to do that, that means you may need to step away and find someone else. Right, right. Um, and don't be afraid. And if you need help, like uh, my email is open. My email is open. Um, so Maisha, we both had this ride. Um, and, you know, I'm in, sitting here in this Zoom room and I'm, and I'm feeling your strength and resilience. Um, so my course, last question, um, what feeds it? What feeds that strength mm-hmm. and resilience in you? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if my if I'm my, my ancestors' wildest dreams. I don't know that. But one of the things that I do know, my mother is no longer here with us. And I think about the kind of woman that she was, and the kind of resilient woman that she was. And I kind of learned from her 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 life as an exemplar because there's just no excuses for me I think um you know she was able to birth me and instill certain kinds of values inside of me and I owe it to her and her legacy to do the very best that I can do with those values in that example and I think when I think about what fused me I mean there's certain kinds of traits that I have that I know I got it from my mama right mm-hmm. um this competitive edge just chip on your shoulder this resilience this tenacity you i got that from a black handicapped woman who was the foster mm. child i mean and so and, and 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 i owe it i owe it to her legacy to do mm. something with with that i'm also like i said the first person in my family to get a to get a degree um and so i owe it to that legacy to do something with that. I also, as, 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 as much as I'm kind of no longer re- religious traditionally, I still kind of believe in notions of if I'm here, I'm gonna leave a legacy. <laughs> now, I don't know what's, at, what's, what's, beyond, what's beyond here, but what I do know is that I'm gonna operate in what kind of purpose I've given to myself and I'm gonna make the best out of it. And when I'm long and gone, someone will remember that I was here. Um, and so that, that's what drives me. I mean, the, and when you have that kind of, um, image and that big picture, you know, obstacles that seems big only, are only small, uh, hindrances or, or haters or whatever, that stuff seems small in the larger scheme of things. And you realize that you're part of a great legacy and you're going to leave one for someone else. Um, that even like the general rejections is like, Okay, I'm not. I no, remember I got, a reje- I, got, I got a general rejection. Um, and be careful in the way in which I say this because I've also been blessed. I, I would say that. Uh, I would say this, but I got a, a general rejection recently. And, uh, you know, usually when we get general rejection, we get, get mad. And the only thing I can think about was like, mm, I got a book coming out on this. <laughs> and, and I thought, and I also thought about like the big advance I got from the book. I was like, in the house that I bought with that big advance. And I'm like, when I own a house with this, it's like somebody thinks. I got a project. So it's like that kind of thing. It's like even the small disappointments you realize in the greatest scheme, you're blessed, 
right? The fact that, you know, we have jobs, we're blessed. And so I'm going to do something with that blessing and be a blessing to someone else. And that's the greatest thing. You know, this is more than a job uh, to me. I'm grateful for the job. I'm grateful that I can make money doing what I do, but this is much more than a job. Mm -hmm. I'm on some other stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm about purpose. I'm about leaving a legacy. I'm about writing work that people can understand that can touch their life or do something about their life. Um, um, I'm on some other stuff. And that's the thing um, that keeps me going. First off, we are, we are sorry to hear about your mother. Um, But if you say she is who she is, we could tell (laughs) speaking to us right now. Uh, And you are 100% representing the legacy of your community. Um, Thank you for that. Yeah, which I mean, yeah, um, yeah, it just is the case. And I know she, uh, you know, I don't like to speak on people's, uh, speak for people, but I know she's proud. Thank you for that. um, Because if I had a daughter like you, I would be proud also. Thank you. 100. Um, uh, I like this idea and I want to leave with this to some extent, that either way, uh, we're leaving a legacy. Uh, What type of legacy do you want to leave? 